Hello and welcome to The Campaign Podcast. I am Gurgit Deegan, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor. Today's episode follows last week's Nudgestock event, the annual festival of behavioural science and creativity. My colleague Matt Barker will be speaking with Rory Sutherland, Ogilvy's Vice Chairman, a little bit later. We'll also hear from the ORS Dan Morris and Leo Burnett's Mark Elwood, who will be discussing the latest ads. But first, I'd like to welcome Gideon Spanier, Campaign's Editor-in-Chief, and Imogen Watson, Campaign's Work and Inspiration Editor, to talk about some of the latest news. So Gideon, this morning you described today, or I suppose this week, as an acquisition frenzy in the office. Was that right? Well, there have been lots of deals going on. So I think that when you've got four deals in the space Mm. of a couple of days, I think we can call that a frenzy. And I guess the big one was Uncommon Creative Studios sold a majority stake to Havas in a deal worth up to £120 million. Mm. Quids in. I know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So they, the, so the, the three founders who were pretty well known to most of our audience, um, Lucy Jameson, Natalie Graham and Nils Leonard, they had about 90% of the business. There were some angel investors who had about 10%. And they've sold, which is a big deal in itself, mm. to Havas. They've sold 51%. Yeah. So we don't know the exact terms, but uh, if, you, if you think that... The ultimate deal could be worth between 80 and 120 million, Havas says. So they, and they've got something up front. So I think it's likely they got seven figures, but who knows? Maybe they got eight figures each. I'm speculating because they're not going to tell us. Oh, I love speculating. Gideon. Mm. There's a couple of holiday homes that are going to be purchased. <laughs> you'd, you'd think. <laughs> So yeah, that's very exciting. And I, so I think the sale of Uncommon, which we, I know we will talk more about, is whatever anyone thinks of generally about selling out or anything else. I mean, that's an amazing thing. They only founded the business in 2017 and less than six years later, they've got this valuation. So that's amazing. Then we had an agency called Tarmigan, which is a, a specialist media agency for financial services, but actually bit pretty low profile. But they sold to Omnicom because they've got a global network with seven offices around the world. Don't know the price of that, but that's interesting because you know they've been a bit of a you, you, having a specialism is very valuable. You have also an interesting deal in the experiences world, and Gurdjieff, I, I could ask you because you wrote that story to say, yeah, what was the headline on that? X Y Z. So X Y Z, big surprise I think for mm. our industry is selling to. Uh, a company called 160 Over 90, which is an agency owned by um, Endeavour, which is a, a massive um, global entertainment company. Um, yeah, so, and the fourth one, Gideon? Is Campaign itself. <gasps> exactly. <laughs> We've got in on the acquisition frenzy. Yeah. So we... That's what uh, made it a frenzy. Yeah, exactly. We, or more correctly, uh, our parent company, Haymarket, has bought a, an advertising title in Canada called The Message. And that deal just has completed and the it's going to become Campaign Canada next year. And the, the two founders and editors are staying with the business. So that's very exciting. But if there was a theme about all four, and yes. I know we really wanted to talk about among about Uncommon and how much money they've made. Um, there's all the global dimension to this. Yes, I was cam- about to say yeah, that. Yeah, yes. Campaign's already in eight mm. markets. UK is the where we were founded in 1968. But why? Because Haymarket and Campaign see this opportunity to, to expand globally. And it, Canada's just is our ninth market, but there's going to be more because Haymarket has said that. Mm. And I think it's really interesting, whatever you think about the UK and Brexit and all these things, mm-hmm. the, the, the world's more connected. 
So Uncommon is this deal is going to help them with a US launch? I think it's going to help them with probably buying things that they like. Um, (laughs) A lot of luxury items like uh, (laughs) Image and Saver. Being serious, the stated reason is, yes, they want to break America. And whilst they weren't explicit about it, uh, the the sort of mood music is to break America as an independent is really hard. Oh, it's so hard, yeah. And with Havas, that's going to give them some firepower and and obviously some, some actual... Um, as a physical network, because you know, Habas is it's the smallest of the big six agency groups, but mm. it's still you know, has over twenty thousand people globally. So they've said they, they absolutely are going to open an office in New York. They've already got some US clients. They um, sort of got by serving rem- remotely, and they're going to open in New York mm-hmm. in the coming months. Is the phrase? What do you think the future of Uncommon? Is Imogen? Yeah. Uh, so obviously, it's a really, I think it's a really exciting pivotal moment for them. Uh, there's been whispers about the fact that, you know, there's who's going to acquire them at some point. Um, and as you say, this move into the US, they've been winning some huge US clients this year. Like they won Jordan Brand, uh, EA, like from US agencies. Mm. So they've been doing an amazing job there. So I'm excited to see where that's going to lead to. They've also been um, saying about the things that they want to buy. They've been doing a lot more sort of production side of things. They did that Nick Cave documentary. We might see them push more that way um, because they've got more space yeah. to do it. Um, but I think what was interesting about it is the fact that it says the deal allows them to retain the brand vision and freedom to make their own decisions across client partners, internal team and creative output. If that's true, Mm. that's going to be a huge, I I reckon it's going to be a successful sale because I feel like that's where tensions further down the line start to appear when, you know, you lose your autonomy and you're not able to control your agency as much. So that's quite exciting. So their office is going to stay the uncommon office. They're not moving into King's Cross. I want to say I didn't ask that question. And just for so people know, because I think sometimes people like to know how the news occurs. Yes. You know, we did get told that this deal was happening, you know, I, and I can say we, we heard through Havas. So that's that's how we heard. So we can't claim that we heard it elsewhere. By the time uh, I actually found, got a chance to speak to the people involved, it was about seven o'clock at night on Tuesday evening. And I think Havas wants to signal to the North American market that they're serious about it. So they decided that they wanted to talk first the Wall Street Journal and then campaign. Mm -hmm. And they decided in their wisdom that the story should be sort of released at 5am because obviously everyone's awake. Sorry, 5am UK time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't have much time to write it Mm -hmm. and let alone sort of talk to... Did you manage to get to bed, Gideon? I went... I went to bed pretty late, is what yeah, I'm going to say. Imagine. I just yeah. hope there's not another frenzy next week. Exactly. <laughs> How many more deals? But that's another story. And that, that's actually very... <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> that's an interesting one. You, know, you don't get a big deal like this that often. Yes. So uh, no. Gurdjieff's been news editor. You know what it's like. You, yeah. Sometimes you just, you think you've got to do it. And it's mm. it's quite exciting to to hear it first. But in all their questions, which mainly were, how much money have you made? <laughs> the ones to which you get the answer, mm. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't actually really ask about that. I said to Yannick Glory, because he said there's a down payment. And I said, so I'll just tell you about the deal in, in a second on the money side. But mm. in terms of, I didn't ask, are you keeping your office? I think that's an interesting one. Mm. Yeah. And I don't want to compare because I don't think I know this. But if I think about what... Accenture's done with Droga 5, where they've consolidated a lot of brands, but they've kept Droga as a sort of special mm-hmm. one. My guess might be that they keep Uncommon as a, as a sort of special brand within yeah. Habas Creative Network. But just on the structure of the deal, just because of, I don't know why 
I guess everyone, including on the campaign commercial team, by the way, are very interested in the money side. I just want to tell our audience. Show us the money. So, exactly. When there's £120 million. So the way the, the deal has been announced is, and this is very rare in my experience, that mm-hmm. a big listed holding company, um, Vivendi, is going, with the value of the deal in six years' time could be worth between 80 and £120 million. There's a down payment. And then obviously that final total will depend on performance they don't say how and i was going if it's between 80 and 120 uh, total back of an envelope guessing could they be getting 40 to start with then if they do really well they get another 40 and if they do amazingly well they get another 80 do you see where, where mm-hmm. i'm going with this mm-hmm. um and of course uh they said uh, this is how i said well we'll you know we don't discuss any of these numbers so you're guessing which is fair enough but it is a guessing game a bit but the fact, the mere fact they put a number on it at the top end, it could be 120 million, uh, of which I guess they've already sold for 51% is, well, that's an amazing thing for a business that did not exist six years ago. How much did Adam and Eve sell for? Well, I think we reported that when they initially sold in 2012, it was for 25 million. But by the ter- time the earnout completed, it was 110. Do you think they just make up these numbers? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Not, who, who do you mean? Who who, who no, makes it up? As, as in, like, these numbers are so massive, it's ridiculous. Mm. Well, I think yeah. I, I think um, that what story, and I think you might remember this. Actually, mm. Omnicom disclosed the numbers in like sort of yes. uh, footnote in the yes. in in some UK accounts for DDB. So really, the number was it, it, the actual number was pretty close to being a hundred percent nailed on and they certainly had the opportunity to tell us we were wrong but um yeah i think it's normally a profit multiple if you if you if you are making you know uh, i'm I, I may, again don't know but guessing if you're making 15 million pounds and it's it's time seven that's how you get to that number suddenly i want to set up an agency well we were talking about this it's amazing yeah, right and it, it, it's a real it, money maker yeah if you're and, good at your job and, <laughs> It, yes. It's not a given. <laughs> well, we were talking, I think, a bit about it. You know, it, it looks so easy when you, but there obviously are lots of people who don't succeed. These and uncommon is, mm. I mean, uncommon, right? You both, when you they've think about, yeah. they've been smashing it. Yeah. They have been smashing it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they certainly have got themselves very talked about, and mm. that's part of the name part of the, the game. Yeah. yeah, they have big clients now as well. Mm-hmm. ITV, BQ, mm-hmm. BA, which one? Mm. I think um, that, that felt like a real turning point with VA because it felt like winning something like that away from Ogilvy. It felt like it was like, we're here and we're here to stay and we're going to, you know, be big. And we're going to take America. Yeah, and we're going to take America. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one other thing that's quite interesting because I'm a nosy person that looks in company accounts. I think and, everybody knows this. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. <laughs> it's a sort of secret, therefore, but actually about two last year or the last accounts, about two thirds of Uncommon's revenue came from project work not retained mm-hmm. so that's interesting because you know how do you build a sustainable business yeah. and i am told by people who know these things not anyone involved in this deal that when you've got project work you know you get a lower valuation on that because yeah. there's less of a guarantee for the buyer that you'll be bringing in the same money next year it's one of the reasons i didn't expect a sale yet because i did think that would be one of the things that sort of not prevented them from getting a sale from getting a sale that they really wanted because I feel like, again, as you say, it's very hard to prove if you've got project-based. Um, so I'm surprised to see yeah, it where happen Yeah, where the money's now. coming in yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. So what, the Uncommon one was quite, uh, um, I think we all 
kind of knew it was coming at some point. Mm. But a bigger surprise was this X Y Z sale. Imogen, yeah, what did you what did you make of that? I was not expecting that, and I think not the level of being acquired, but the fact that they're changing the name. And I think that you know, in recent years, X Y Z has built up such a strong name for itself, particularly with its work with Montclair. You know, the London Fashion Week event was absolutely incredible, and then the multi century experience of Freeze, and then you know they've been working with Calvin Klein and Paris uh, Palace. The, they've been working with huge brands, setting a name for themselves. So, like, you know, and for anyone that doesn't know, X Y Z is one of the biggest players in the experiential landscape alongside Amplify. So, I'm just surprised that they're being re changing their name to One Sixty Over Ninety. But because there was always that worry with agencies when they lose their name, will they lose their identity? But that's the challenge for Will and Paul. Um, so yeah, Will, um, Will Mould and Paul Stanway founded yeah. XYZ. Mm-hmm. Um, is it about 10 years ago now, yeah. I think? Um, and they're still very much involved. Yeah, 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 they are. Yeah, yeah. And so they're going to be moving the agency. I think they're current. Well, I know they're currently kind of near Oxford Circus and they're going mm. to be moving in to a 160 over 90s offices yeah. in Shoreditch. Um, but yeah, as you say, the challenge here is... How do you keep doing that great work yeah, keep under doing a new name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, but I think, yeah, I think they've they've got what it takes yeah. to to do that. And then again, as, as Gideon said, the theme here is global expansion. Yeah. They talked a lot, when I speak to them, mm. they talked a lot about EMEA and, and mm. you know, their work there and they've done mm-hmm. a lot there. Um, and, and, and we will also said that they get clients or, or work or projects to do in the US, but they feel like they're kind of dealing with them at arm's length. Mm. Whereas with this, they've got the kind of capabilities and the grounding there mm. now to uh, to work on those uh, projects. I feel a feature is brewing here on global expansion. <laughs> there is. Yeah. There definitely is. Yeah, especially for campaign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the biggest acquisition story of the week. <laughs> Great. That is all we have time for. So thank you, Gideon. And thank you, Imogen. Uh, Next, we have Campaigns Features Editor Matt Barker speaking with Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy's offices in Sea Container's house about the importance of messiness. Uh, Apologies in advance that we had a few hiccups with the sound. I'm here at uh, the Ogilvy HQ down at London South Bank. It's a lovely uh, sun-dappled morning. I always wanted to be a Test match cricket commentator. Can you tell? Uh, I know. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have bowling in from the pavilion end. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Rory Sutherland. Now, Rory, I was at the Nudstock uh, event last last Friday uh, and, and greatly enjoyed it. And, and it was the whole concept was looking around Messi, wasn't it? Which is the, the, the sort of the state of mind or whatever, rather, rather than, the, than the footballer. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask you. Why? What was the thinking behind that? Well, part of the point of nudge stock, which comes from a kind of portmanteau word from nudge, as in nudge theory, the book by Richard Thaler, and so forth, behavioral economics kind of um, foundational work, and stock as in Woodstock. And in part, what it exists for is almost a little bit of a return to the madman era of advertising, where advertising had more of a hinterland. I think advertising has become dangerously self-referential and obsessed with itself. Mm. Um, less so, actually. I think in recent years I've seen a, a, you know, a, a, a change from that. But I think there was a period where advertising became increasingly self-obsessed and also has become kind of technology and quantification obsessed. Uh, and 
the detriment there is that what you might call the hinterland of a creative agency, which is involvement in investigation in things like, for example, psychology, behavioral science, which you would have seen in ad agencies actually in the 50s and 60s until the early 70s. Um, we're effectively trying to bring it back. And the consequence of this, the downside is, is that yes, it probably makes things a bit messier because when you're obviously uh, looking for more sources of inspiration for how you can make marketing communications and marketing activity uh, more potent. Um, there's a natural tendency in people, I think, unhealthily, to try and reduce the solution space as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. In other words, well, it's this, this is our process, this is the process we slavishly follow, regardless of the nature of the problem we're actually um, tackling. And we won't look for any inspiration anywhere else. We won't pause and kind of ask, uh, you know, we won't pause and make multiple attempts to redraft the question um, or redefine the problem. We'll just proceed straight on in the usual linear way. And people like that because, in a sense, they, in a sense, they, they like kind of linear there's one right answer, best practice approaches to things, because, of course, it reduces the number of decisions you have to make, in a way, and it reduces ambiguity. We argue that you have to cherish the ambiguity, you've got to embrace the ambiguity, because in problem solving, um, generally, effort put into redefining the problem pays off disproportionately well. The, the only price you pay is that you have to accept this period of messiness at the beginning. And I think it's a really important point. One of the things I talked about in Nudgestock is I think we've created a business culture and, if you're interested, a political culture, which selects people for their ability to win arguments, not their ability to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And there's a big, I think there's a big difference. Okay, If you want to win an argument, you start with a premise, you do a whole load of natural induction, you end with a QED, and everybody goes, you've won that argument. And it's very difficult to do something in business or politics now without winning an argument first. But actually, if you look at not only the creative world, but also science, more often than not, real progress, the real solution to problems, actually happens obliquely, laterally, by accident. You know, I mean, one thing I think you should do as a creative organization, by the way, is you should just say, let's leave enough time to get lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now... Why is it, I, I think, you know, with sort of PPE graduates and people doing economics degrees, I think what we're doing is rewarding people, promoting people uh, for their ability to win arguments. And concomitantly with that, we've come to the assumption that the quality of your reasoning correlates with the quality of the decision, which correlates with the quality of the outcome. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, one of the points I make in my book much earlier is that you know, hugely successful things from you know, Red Bull to the Dyson vacuum cleaner uh, to, funnily enough, Amazon Web Services. They were all, and Amazon Prime, actually. They were all ideas that made no sense at first and that most people were deeply opposed to, yeah. but which have turned, turned out to be transformational, precisely, I think, because they've come from a different place. Mm -hmm. And so this is really a, an attempt to, I hope, reboot the creative agency by giving it... Um, Broadly speaking, I mean, David Ogilvy defined a copywriter, a good copywriter, as an extensive browser in all kinds of fields. And actually, I, you know, I, I think the, the quest for efficiency, you know, I mean, if you, if you look at it, um, 
the quest for efficiency, which has been driven by payment by the hour and other utterly foolish um, policies adopted by creative agencies, mm -hmm. the separation of media and creative, similarly, you know, is something which is done for reasons of organizational neatness, not really for value creation. Okay. And I think what we've done there is we've actually uh, limited the opportunity of creative organizations really to come up with transformational ideas. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the, the neatness of the process looks very, very good if you're a finance person. Actually, what we've got to worry about is the quality of the consequences. And I always ask the question, you know, if you, if you, it's just a hypothetical question, but it's worth asking every single week. If you designed an ad agency, not around how to make money, but around how to create value, it'd be a very different kind of business, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, you, know, you wouldn't care what the utilization rate of people was. You'd go, if you can come up with one $5 million idea every year, you're on the payroll, for example. And I think the ability to make things kind of neat, quantifiable, and kind of legible to people at the top of organizations often actually has deeply deleterious consequences lower down. Because mm -hmm. that, that's what really came across on, on, on mm. Friday, I, I felt, because um, <clears throat> it was this idea that don't be passive with data, which I thought was really interesting, because obviously it's, uh, we all get caught up in this sort of science versus magic argument and all the rest of it, but what it was... What, what I sort of picked up from Friday most of all was that there's creativity within data. The, the, the way you oh, absolutely. It, the way you attack it, the way you kind of look into it and say, well, actually, if that's saying that, then let's look at what this But is. also there's the data you don't have. Right. So yeah. my, my story, on uh, which, you know, I, I think I'm right about, but, but you know, we'll, maybe we'll never know now, okay? But at least it's a, you know, I'm allowed to hypothesize. You know, the failure of John Lewis in Tunbridge Wells is an example where you could very easily, using the data you already have, Infer from the fact that the Tunbridge Wells John Lewis closed down, the fact that a town like Tunbridge Wells, for some reason, can't support a John Lewis. Mm -hmm. okay? Now, my contention was that there were about seven factors, none of which would appear on a database anywhere, okay, which contributed to its failure. It had a separate car park. The sign uh, introducing the, the entrance to the car park was after the turn for the car park. You could only turn into that car park when you were leaving the retail park and when you were driving in. The big signage saying John Lewis at home was on the narrow side of the building, which made the thing look about five times smaller than it really was. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, and finally, by the way, you know, the car park wasn't shared with any other retailer, so you couldn't pick up the footfall from the TK Maxx. Okay. And finally, they called it John Lewis at home, mm -hmm. which meant that me and Anecdotal, I admit, that about 10 other people I've spoken to live locally spend about seven years assuming it's on furniture right. and nothing else. We saw John Lewis at home, home base, home sense. You assume it's basically a furnishings store. Now, actually, when I finally went in, I discovered it sold digital you know, televisions, computers, digital radios, you know, loads of gadgets, lots of really, really interesting electrical goods. Well, it, I think it didn't sell women's fashion or something like mm -hmm. that. Came up <clears throat> like I care. Okay. And, um, you know, that decision to put that, why? Why not just call it John Lewis? Okay. You know, it really wouldn't have hurt. Okay. Um, why do you call it John Lewis at home? Yeah. Whose idea was that? <laughs> now, the point is, that doesn't appear on a database. So, lacking that information, you can make an inference using your existing mathematical numerical data that I would argue is completely erroneous. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's one thing that really worries me, which is that actually the data... Secondly, when we collect data, we tend to collect it for aggregation upwards. So the data we have tends to be averages. Now, I'm quoting Mark Ritson here, you know, the average is the enemy of the marketer. Mm. What marketers want to know is anomalies. Marketers mm -hmm. want to know outliers. Marketers d derive the story from not what... What, what's average, but actually what's unusual. It's worth noting the kind of hierarchy here, which is we tend to look at finance people as if they're kind of awesome. But let's face it, a finance person is a failed economist, an economist is a failed physicist, and a physicist is a failed mathematician. So, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, um, uh, it's a bit, bit hard. But I mean, I also worry about the extent to which uh, creative, the creative part of the agency has too little size within the organization. I think we've seen a, a, an inordinate growth in agencies in what you might call ancillary yes. uh, functions. And the creative department in every agency is simply not big enough. Because actually, if there's one department where, I always remember this is partly why I went into the whole business. I, I, I unsuccessfully applied to be a graduate um, recruit at J. Walter Thompson in 1988, I think. And I got onto the final sort of selection thing. I think it would have been absolutely shit as an account man. <laughs> and I would have been doubly shit at J. Walter Thompson. So I had a, a lucky escape there, to be honest. But I remember the creative person coming down and saying, as a creative director, it's the one job in the world where you look down your department and if you see people staring out of the window, you're happy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And actually, I think we need to, I think we need to, I was talking to the author of, um, Michael Farmer, the author of Madison Avenue Manslaughter. And he has a load of statistics which basically show that the uh, the agency business is getting inordinately more work out of far fewer people. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of the efficiency gains have just gone to creating a kind of administrative cast within agencies. Yeah. And there's, there's a quote which is that in any organization, someone dedicated to the bureaucracy, the, the people whose jobs are dedicated to the effectively the perpetuation of the bureaucracy, uh, are basically more likely to grow in number and flourish in power than the people who are principally dedicated to what the organization purports to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things that worries me is, you know, if there's one department where it really doesn't matter having a few people, well, I'll include behavioral science in this as part of the sort of, you know, the creative scheme of things. But if there's one department where it doesn't matter having a few people kicking around, you know, with spare time, you know, it's a creative department. Mm. It's luck, as yeah. I said. You know, you wait to get lucky. But I mean, one really important thing here, why I'm optimistic and why I sort of, if you like, tied my colours to the mast of behavioural science to such an extent, is it does provide, I, I don't think marketing language is any good for winning arguments, okay? I think that Alistair Graham, a wonderful copywriter who used to work here, used to say the language of marketing, the vocabulary of marketing is a bit like the vocabulary of kind of uh, astrology. You know, if you're talking to fellow believers, it's fine. But if you're talking to anybody else, they think you're whack. You know, it's like, you know it's, as I said, you talk, talk about brand iconography to a finance guy is just like, you know, we're trusting to the healing power of the crystal. Yeah. And one of the things I think with behavioral science is it, it, it pays off actually twice, okay? It helps you generate better ideas and more interesting ideas, more oblique ideas based on a reasonable understanding of the vagaries of human psychology. Mm -hmm. But also when you have those ideas, it helps you defend them in scientific terms. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is why I think it's really important for the creative agencies to get their hinterland back. I mean, if you've gone to, actually Ogilvy for that matter, but if you've gone to any ad agency in the 50s, there would have been a kind of agency psychologist. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, most interestingly, Marshall McLuhan, for example, an academic, was made famous by Howard Luck Gossage, who was the extraordinary creative man who ran that tiny agency in a converted fire station in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Gossage actually formed a company called Generalists Inc., which probably was the first behavioral science, uh, applied behavioral science practice anywhere in the world. Okay. And I think. You know, I think getting that, what you might call getting that breadth back, um, getting back those, you know, enough space to have, to use the police metaphor, alternative lines of inquiry uh, is absolutely essential. You mentioned you were optimistic earlier. Is, is that sort of, it seems to me, I don't know how or, or does this sort of dovetail with, with everything that happened under lockdown, because if it, not messy, it was certainly a lot more fluid then, wasn't it? Things were a bit more up for grabs and so on. And, and, and I think, I hope, that there's a gr growing conclusion that what you might call the efficiency optimization McKinseyite school of uh, competing through operational efficiency as distinct from creating value on the shelf or in the showroom. I hope that there's growing acknowledgement that that has run out of road and has actually gone from being, by the way, it was probably quite useful at first. Okay. Mm. There is, you know, in a lot of organizations, left their own devices, a lot of fat will build up, carving some of that off. You know, I do not think that advertising agencies should operate their own private jets. Just to give an example, okay. You know, carving off a bit of fat, that's healthy up to a point. But there's a limit. You can't cost cut your way to growth. And there's a point where, first of all, you run out of road, and then it goes to become deeply counterproductive because the effectively the hidden costs and opportunity costs you're creating through your cost cutting, which you aren't measuring, mm -hmm. partly because you deliberately didn't set out to measure it in order to prove the success of your conception, uh, start to outweigh the gains. Right. Significantly, you know. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I'd argue about. There's a limit to how efficient you want a creative department to be. You know, bees discovered this. They've had 20 million years of being bees. And they fundamentally realized that actually wiggle room, as distinct from waggle room, mm. is necessary in any creative process. You know, we're not a 19th century cotton mill. And mm. um, um, it's very interesting because I hope, I hope at least also that the investor community is beginning to notice this, that actually um, uh, there's potentially no limit to competition through value creation. There is a limit to uh, competition through cost cutting. Right. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the, the cult of quantification really needs to be challenged. Nothing, nothing by the way, don't, don't get me wrong, right? I mean, I, I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm singularly uninterested by ad agency financial figures because I don't think there's any correlation really for an ad agency between how much money you make and how much value you create. Okay, right? You know, the most valuable thing you do as an ad agency in a business which charges by the hour probably takes 15 seconds, and it happens once every five years on a particular brand. Right? Mm. You know, it's a you know it's a moment of inspiration, and. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, if, if, if you know, if I worked for Unilever, I'd be you know pouring over figures with a huge degree of 
you know, forensic attention because yeah. in that kind of business, you know, where you make money and where you add value are quite well connected, you know. Um, it's like league football. You know, league football is actually a measure of who is a good football team. Let's be honest, okay, knockout competitions are a bit of a nonsense. Yeah. You know, and that, so there are, you know, there, there's league football where you have enough data points to have a reliable com a, a reliable correlation between success and quality, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have knockout football, which let's face it, is and you know, our business is closer to the latter than the former. Sure. Rory, wonderful. It's, it's been lovely time. Absolute pleasure. Delight. Great stuff. I'm now gonna hand back to Gurdjieff in, uh, in in beautiful downtown Twickenham. Thanks so much, thank you. So I'd like to welcome Dan Morris, Executive Creative Director at The Awe, and Mark Elwood, Executive Creative Director at Leo Burnett. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, so we're going to review some ads. Thank you for joining us. Uh, first, we have Pringles with Can Hands by Grey London. So this is a remake of their Super Bowl ads, which poke fun at what can happen uh, if people get their hands stuck inside a tub of Pringles. Uh, the films were created by Katie Bird, Caitlin Horrocks, Noam Taylor, Flora German and Shivani Patel and directed by Ulf Johansson through Smith & Jones. So let's have a listen. Pringles. A taste you can't let go. So, Mark, have you ever got your hand stuck in a tub of Pringles? <laughs> I'm actually a bit of a Pringles addict. That is my it's a real weak spot of mine. What's your favourite flavour? Which one do you go for? Paprika ones. When you find those, they're absolutely genius. <laughs> I mean, I, I like a, a crisp from other countries, and paprika always hits the mark. So I haven't, I kind of haven't ever got my hands stuck in them, but I do get stuck into a packet of Pringles. I don't like sharing them either, which is, you know. That's quite a big tub. I was going to say, yeah. you do a whole, a whole one. Every now and then, if you talk to my partner, she would, she would tell you that, and I'm not going to deny it. But no, I like, I like the idea when it was, it was first shown, you know, I think it was 2022. It feels like a long time ago that it was a Super Bowl spot, and it, it does feel like it was a good idea because there is a truth in it. You know, you do kind of get to the bottom and it, if you're not tipping them and all the crumbs are going over the floor from where they're a bit broken. I, you know, I really enjoyed, I think there's a, a slightly different take on it when it's not just one scenario. I can't remember which it was called in in the, the spots, but when it, it was the woman doing the kind of loads of different things with it, the hair curling, the <laughs> yeah. that felt fresher to me than it just being, I've got my hand stuck in the can at a party and you're doing that the multiple use one i thought was really entertaining it was it was really you know i liked it and it's and it is an idea that you can kind of keep going on i think if you take it out of home it might be even bigger and better dan i'm gonna slightly put a counterpoint to to mark i mean i i when i first saw the super bowl one i think maybe you know, un unlike Mark, I, I, I don't have a, I'm not a recovering Pringles addict, so I, I don't, I don't do them as often, but I guess I didn't particularly see the uh, getting stuck in it, like truth of it, like for the sort of premise of the joke. So when I saw that with the Super Bowl one, I was like, eh, you know, 
And I think like if you're in at the first start, then as always with these the comedy things, you're going to sort of nod and smile along. I guess it just didn't get me from there. I think it's a tricky it's a tricky act also when you inherit something that's not your idea to to do. Um, so I think it's it's an admirable uh, go at it to 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 extend that joke and uh you know who would have thought four or five ads later of that that joke still going but i think they've done a a solid job of it but hard hard thing to do definitely on the um inheriting the idea i think that's harder part to your point i think they are pretty admirable on taking it on and making it slightly move on thought the casting was good as well you know, yeah. it's interesting casting. It didn't feel like it was flat on that score. There's some good performances, you know, which which helps, I think, the idea. Yeah, there's some good faces and, and like nice nice little bits to it. But yeah, it's it's one of those briefs, isn't it, when it comes in and you're just like, Well, how are we gonna do this again? Yeah. It would be tougher to get to, which is why I kind of like the multiple feeling to it, the multiple uses feels like it's always a, a, a sweet spot. Brilliant. Thank you. So the next one is The Fork, which is a restaurant booking site with You're All Set by Droga 5 London. So this one is about the consequences of doing things without preparation. For example, we see a man going skiing without checking the weather and he's stuck on a hill um, in his skiing gear while others around him are hiking. So this ad was made by Florence Russell and Alex Robson and directed by Frank Atlantic through Arts and Science. Let's have a quick listen. Sure, you could book a restaurant without using the fork. You know, just like you can go skiing without checking the weather. Travel without searching where your hotel is. Even enter a tournament without training. You can buy a home without researching its history. Or I don't know, develop AI without considering the consequences. So Dan, are you uh, uh, good at prepping? As in like the American version where I go into a bunker and line the <laughs> shelves of the apocalypse. Absolutely. <laughs> um, within the context of the ad. Maybe some things to learn. I mean, I, I, uh, I obviously have, I know all the people involved, so... You know, my, I only recently left Droga. So uh, I um a big shout out to those people. But uh, no, I thought, you know, it's a, it's um it's a, it's a fun ad. It's um it, it moves along along nicely. The scenarios sort of are uh, are surprising enough to keep going and keep you entertained. Um I think it's a with those again sort of briefs it's a tricky one because you're trying to have to explain what the thing is throughout. So sometimes you can get a bit restricted by that, but I think they did a fun job of it. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's always more admirable. I think when you've turned something quite difficult, which I imagine that was at the starting point into something entertaining. What do you think, Mark? I agree. I mean, it's for me, I hadn't heard of the fork. So it's a launch spot, isn't it, really? It's like this is your first time of ever coming up against this new app. And I think it's very similar to Dan, actually. I think it's a great use of humour. 
in there. I think you get the message so quickly, you know, like with this, you're going to be, this app, you're going to be prepared. You're going to know what you're getting. That's important when you're spending money as well. You know, it's eating out, it's expensive. So, you know, you knowing what you're going to get. I, I enjoyed it as a spot and thought the scenarios were really good. I wondered though, you know, time length is something when you get a 60, did they need it? You know, would this be much punchier getting through the scenarios quicker? Less scenarios make two thirties or whatever that would have been. Would it have romped along faster? And would you have been able to up the humor a little bit? It might have suffered there. I think we. I do agree. I think it would have felt maybe would have been interested to see what like forty seconds would have been, for example, to get some pace throughout and and just to see how that would have played out. As a as as the shape of the thing, yeah, it could have been just faster on the humor, and that's not having anything to have a go at the creative at all. I think it was just a, a cut. It might have been better as a cut down. I think, you know, sometimes when we do funny work for McDonald's, you know, there's a reason savers usually twenty seconds because you can get a gag really fast and you're in and you're, you're out. Or, you know, we've all sat there and kind of been given a forty and. Sometimes the thirty cut down, you're going. I'm much happier with that, just because it feels like it's it's quicker and there's not any fat in it at all. And you know, I actually really enjoyed this spot, but there's a couple where you just go, I don't know whether I I needed those at that time. So I wonder whether yeah. it would benefit from a from a. I feel like also the um, the the Apple ad that won the Grand Prix at Cannes was a sort of. Uh, like rejection of that from from the industry to say you know maybe maybe it doesn't always need to be that because mm. i mean subject subjectivity aside of whether you like it definitely makes a statement that a like a tight 30 second act can win the best film of the year yeah i think that's bang on okay so next we have yorkshire tea with pack your bags by lucky generals this is a music video that celebrates how people take tea with them on their summer holidays to ensure they have a decent cuppa. Uh, it was directed by Fred Rosen through Blink and the song was produced by Ninja Tunes. Let's take a little listen. Get up! Plats catch, plans to hatch, clean the teeth, yeah, we're going our beef there. Seven days of holiday with all the amigos, only problem I can only pack ten kilos. Some cream check, sun hat check, ten bucks of Yorkshire tea. Shit! Let's get lightly caffeinated. Holiday time, no downs, just ups, pack my kettle and pack my cups. So I'm not a tea drinker and I didn't realise this was a thing. Um, I just thought you go on holiday and people complain like my husband does. Um, so did Mark, do you take tea on holiday with you? I, I don't, but my partner is Northern and drinks so much tea. It is unbelievable. So she would take tea on holiday with her. But this was, it does feel like there's a really lovely insight in here. And it is something that the nation will relate to. I think this is brilliant, by the way, just to get that out of the way early. I loved it. There's, it's one of those things when I first watched it and you went, oh, God, two minutes, 36. You know, we just talked about clipping a time length somewhere. I didn't think there was any fat in this. I really enjoyed watching it and I've watched it a few times. I think the song's been done brilliantly. Fred's a brilliant director. I've worked with him a couple of times and he's fantastic. He's really kind of pulled out the stops in this film. But there's so many lovely little kind of moments in there that, 
are really tight insights and they've really brought, you know, it's all the ads we're talking about have got humour in. And that's a really nice term, but this is proper funny at times. I, I really like it. And just managing to get the roll call of product in here as well. They talk about <laughs> yeah. old biscuit tea, you know, every, everything is in there really nicely. And, you know, the journey of the ad, it really, really goes along a proper pace. And, you know, a lot of the post techniques are really funny. I, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic spot. Great truth. Totally relate. My mum, I'll always remember, still does. I mean, she's not even abroad. She'll take her own tea to restaurants. No. Know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Full, full addiction. Um, and yeah, I know, I know people that do that will, will pack it. Um, so I, lo- I love the insight. I think there was, there was great fun to be had with that. Wasn't a massive fan of the execution personally. Um, I didn't, I feel like there could have been something maybe a, a, just a different slant, just not necessarily the way I, I would have gone about it. I, I always say like that you have to have a pretty good reason these days to doing a music video or a dance because it's such an easy answer to, to any executional problem because it can be put under pretty much anything. And, you know, there is always exceptions to that and there's some fantastic music ads, there's some fantastic dance ads. I wouldn't rank this in the pantheon of those. Um, and I feel like it's, you sort of lost the, the insight through the like endless description of it through the lyrics rather than just sort of haunt, like focusing in on the joke. Um, but you know, each to their own with it. It's like, like it was really nicely, nicely done. As Mark said, I like all the the techniques and and stuff they put in, and it was visually interesting. It's just not a style of doing it that sort of tickled me. That's really interesting. I didn't see it as a kind of dance spot, really. I didn't kind of look at it towards the lens of a music video or a, a okay. dance spot. I know, know it's got obviously it's got the song, and I find you know I've had a go at those a couple of times to see if you can get to something good if you're writing a song. And I've abandoned it a few times. It's tricky. <laughs> you know, genuinely on routes where you go, I think we could do a really good song on this. And you you write it and keep writing it and keep crafting it. And you just go, no, it's utter crap, you know. And I think this one, I really thought the craft of the writing of the song, how sticky it is in your head, how hooky it was. But it didn't, I don't know why, why, it didn't feel like particularly just it's a a song and music video to me. It felt like a really clever ad, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't know. Just different. It's, it's difficult to know where the context of where it would be as well, yeah. right? Like, are they going to chop? They could chop it up and put it put yeah. it into different different social spots, which maybe would give it a completely different feel. Like you said, it's not, mm. it, it is interesting because I I instantly saw that and I saw two and a half minute song and I was like oh music video yeah and I'm like well you know you've got to seek that out and watch it in its in its full form so that's why I was judging it through the lens through but now I'd be interested to see that would I would I've looked at it differently if it was you know in a different format hard it's such a hard thing to pull off I think and I think you know definitely I think it'll win awards this year I'd, I'd be entertained by that on a jury definitely Brilliant. So from uh, tea to beer, uh, we have caused a fresh ride by Habas London. 
And this shows a group of friends trying to get to a party in some snowy mountains. Instead of a car, three bears turn up as their ride. The ad has been created by Shay Reading and Frank Ginger. It was directed by Diamid through Untold Studios, which also created the CGI animals. Let's have a listen. Still no taxi. <laughs> Guys, the ride's here. Anything I touch right now is fresh. Everything in my life right now blessed. Work so hard, no time to rest. I ain't gonna stop till I am the best. Right. Hey. I'm having a nightmare, mate. They sent the wrong ride. Yeah, Beaver. Going on with him and I'm going on dread. In a slum fashion, the man is undead. Still white ass, and I'll wear red. Anyway, here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> We do things differently on the mountain, like never serving our beer until the mountains turn blue. Coors, keep it fresh. Dan, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was okay. It's just one of those middle ground ads for me. It's not, I didn't hate it as much as maybe I would have on the premise of reading it as a paragraph. Um, I think there was some performance stuff I wasn't a massive fan of. Like my general rule with with comedy stuff like that is if something is out exceptional or out of the ordinary, it's never great when people do the double take, you know, bond pigeon moment where they're like, oh, and there was a bit of that going on. And so that kind of is a personal grating of mine when I see that in ads. Um, you've always just got to lean into it. Uh, so I, I think just there are some comedic styling moments that just didn't didn't mesh for me, but I didn't I didn't hate it. Mark. <laughs> um, I thought the message was slightly lost. At the end, you know the we only uh, serve our beer when the mountains turn blue. That's the fresh. Is that the ice? Yeah, the ice cold. Geronda. Yeah, I did not understand oh, yeah. that either. Also, <laughs> <laughs> it got a bit lost, and I think the whole kind of ad was probably meant to be around that. The message was slightly confusing because I, I wanted to get to the end and just go, "Oh, okay." I wonder what the fresh beer, fresh ride. Then you've got the kind of mountains turning blue. We only serve our beer when the mountains turn blue. I think that needed unpacking slightly more. What does it mean? The message. I presume it's like when it hits minus three degrees or whatever it is on the, or some kind of temperature, It that's it. I mean, the reason, the fact we're discussing it, Dan, means that the, the message at the end was slightly missed. But, you know, to Dan's point, there was a lot going on in there. There was the beaver joke, the... Eagle, there's a lot going on. And I think Cause have always had that irreverence in their advertising with Van Damme or whatever. They've had a history of it and they've definitely tried to push it on. So, and there was just a bit of messaging, I think, that got lost in the translation of the script and the edit. But it was nice to see it being that big, it felt quite epic. Bears, eagles, mountains, all of that. Yeah. yeah. What's weird? I had a really visceral reaction to 
you know the song i think it's because when you watch like the yeah more for 408 what is it called now the the, online for streaming thing those ads with the guy snow like like swimming through the snow that music comes on and i it, it provokes quite a visceral hate within me now that song for no reason that i've been bombarded with it so so i think it's like for no like just because i've been exposed to it so much by watching watching uh, channel four um so there is maybe something to be said about you know overkill with with stuff like that because it's clearly now well we've got to have it on everything as well a visceral hate <laughs> yeah yeah like it's it's fine i don't even hate those items it's just the music has just been it's a bit it's been maybe a bit of like guantanamo bay where you know i just sort of subject it to it relentlessly as uh, my other half which is uh, made in chelsea that's quite funny i was i actually shazam the track because i was i was quite enjoying it <laughs> no no it's not a bad song it's just i've just heard it way too much it's good but yeah i mean it's it was again to to dan's point earlier i think it's it was at least adventurous and at least it's trying to push it and at least it's trying to have humor i think all four things we've we've reviewed or talked about have got humor there's a lot being written about that in in all of the press including campaign at the moment about the return of humor it's difficult to get it right every time and i think that if we all keep going at it you know yorkshire tea being a brilliant example of humor in in this as well you know at least everything's trying to be a bit more light-hearted and uh not as serious and that's a welcome addition i think absolutely i am delighted to see that in in all the ads that, that we watched today it's uh it's a real sort of sunrise moment in the industry if that's happening again genuinely it's uh it's, it's nice not to not to feel just you know that the world is a crushing place when i, when I watch ads sometimes <laughs> well that's a good note to end it on <laughs> it is thank you so much uh, to dan and mark um that is all we have time for if you'd like to learn more about what we have been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of a campaign podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And a big thank you to Haymarket's studio manager, Nav Pal, and also to our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And to you for listening, I hope you will join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.